0: grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Here's a pop quiz for you. Don't worry, it's only one question. And I'm even going to give you the potential answers. Your choices are Old Testament and New Testament. Ready? The Bible says that God's word of forgiveness in Christ will be spread throughout the world. Where? Where does it say, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in Christ's name to all nations? Again, your choices are Old Testament and New Testament. So which is it? Come on, you got a 50-50 chance of being right. <laughs> well, not really. Because if you chose New Testament and not Old then you're wrong. Now if you just mentally erased that answer and said, Old Testament and not new, then, I'm sorry, you're even more wrong. Just moments ago in the Gospel lesson, we heard from the New Testament book of Luke. And there we heard Jesus tell His disciples these exact words. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations. However, Jesus introduces this by saying what? Thus it is written. And that's New Testament language by saying the Old Testament says. So both the Old Testament and the New Testament together say that God's word of forgiveness, that is our pardon in Christ, will spread throughout the world. Beginning from Jerusalem. But note this carefully also. It doesn't say when or where we should stop. And if that's a surprise to us, then shame on us. Because most of us have been Christians long enough to know better and long enough even to have read through our Bibles cover to cover more than once. And to come across that verse from Luke 24. On the other hand, if you've used your Bible so much that you've worn out the pages, or having failed to read it much so long that you've misplaced it, then I'm sure that Walmart or Target would be happy to sell you a new Bible this afternoon when you shop for bread and peanut butter and socks and shampoo. And for all of those other items, too. Especially the ones that you don't really need. We have comforts and luxuries that were unknown and beyond even the imagination of God's believers in any other point in history and more than what most people have yet today and this one simple and obvious fact staring at us right in the face every day that really ought to make all of our doubts about God's goodness seem all the more ignorant and wicked just like baptism and the crucifixion like repentance and confession Our recollection of and our thanksgiving for God's first article goodness ought to be a part of our daily remembrance. And what's more, especially in this Easter season, more than in any other time of the year, we focus our remembrance also on Christ's resurrection. Jesus has risen from the dead so that you would be rescued from darkness so that you would have fellowship with Christ in knowing your justification and your purification by His blood. That you would find salvation only in His name. He shows Himself to eyewitnesses to have flesh and bone. And He not only sends them off to you and to the entire world in their words of the New Testament, Jesus also gives us the facts of the Old Testament. Promises to hang our faith on. Promises that are fulfilled in Him, through Him, and by Him. And even some promises that are already your precious possessions, though not fully realized just yet. Turns out, though, that the Old Testament is really not all that different from the New Testament. It's the same story because it is all about Jesus. Not some scattered passages here and there, but rather every single page helps us connect the dots to tell us that the Son of God comes to save His people. There is Jesus on the first pages of the Old Testament, foreshadowed as the new Adam even in the earliest days of the old Adam. He was put into the deep sleep of death while God the Father takes blood and water from His side to create a new Eve the Christian church to be His Son's Bride. There is Jesus, the perfect and new Abel, the perfect and new Joseph, sacrificed into death by their brother's jealousy. Yet God works their evil intentions for a merciful rescue. There is Jesus too, the angel of the Lord, intervening in Abraham's sacrifice of his son Isaac, the father's only son, the one whom He loves. And we are Isaac with God's death sentence hanging over us for our imperfect obedience. Christ is the ram of the offering. The substitute that God has provided caught in the thicket of the cross. There is Jesus on the night of the Passover. The night of freedom for the Israelites from their bondage of slavery in Egypt. And we are Israel in bondage to death, powerless to free ourselves from our diabolical taskmaster of sin. Jesus is the Passover Lamb roasted in the fire of God's judgment and His burning desire to save the world from sin. We eat and we drink His seemingly plain and sparse supper, but in it we are granted freedom and joy in, with, and under His shed rich blood. There is Jesus in the Exodus, as Israel passes through their baptism in the cloud and in the water of the Red Sea, accompanied by Christ. Like Noah's flood, the Red Sea crossing corresponds to baptism. The baptism that now saves you, as we've heard many times. And you come out of baptism alive as God's people, standing on solid ground on the rock of Christ. Your old sinful nature, however, is drowned as the water comes down upon it. When you see this salvation, you believe in the Lord because God chose you to be a member of His royal priesthood, His holy nation. Peter 2 describes us as a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. There is Jesus. A prophet like Moses, but one greater than Moses. One who must die before he enters the promised land. Not for his disobedience like Moses, but for our disobedience. He is our bridge over Jordan, just as, we, just as he is our bridge from death into life. There is Jesus too. The new Joshua, leading us out of the wilderness and into God's promised land. There is David. David. There is Jesus the new David in weak human flesh out there on the battlefield looking scrawny and helpless and harmless in the shadow of Goliath, Satan. And yet Jesus is still victorious. There He is. Jesus, the son of David and Bathsheba, the new one, the one who dies because of David's adultery and murder. And yet David still knows that he shall see his son after this life. There is Jesus, the new Daniel, rejected for his faithfulness to the Lord and sent into the lion's den of death, but coming out of the pit again in the morning, safe and exalted over his enemies. There is Jesus, the new Jonah, brought back to the land of the living after three days in the gut of death, going without reluctance to preach repentance and forgiveness in His name to all of the Ninevehs everywhere. There is Jesus praying the Psalms. Even praying the Psalms that confess sins. For though He had no guilt of His own, He has taken on our wickedness and He treats it as if it belonged to Him. Rooted in the history of God's Old Testament people, all of their battles, all of their ups and downs, all of their successes and failures, their strengths and their weaknesses, is this single message. That the Christ... God's anointed one, the Messiah, would suffer and die and on the third day rise again in order to save this whole messed up world so that all of the nations of this world would be blessed. Literally hundreds if not thousands of years before it all happened, it is written down and it is passed on, handed down to us, all pointing to what Jesus said. It is finished. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, we are told, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If we do not know that thus it is written, if we are ignorant that the Son of God is everywhere in the Old Testament with His free grace and His favor, then we neither know the Scriptures nor the power therein. And that was where the disciples were on that Easter evening when Jesus appeared to them. They hadn't yet grasped that they stood purified of all unrighteousness. They knew knew that God was powerful, but they didn't understand the power of God. But then God is there, back in the flesh from the dead, eating and drinking in their presence. It turns out, though, that seeing is not believing. At least not in its entirety. For they could not understand the Scriptures until Jesus opened their minds. And then they knew that Moses and the prophets and the Psalms were fulfilled when Christ suffers, when He rises again from the dead on the third day, and when repentance and forgiveness of sins is preached in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Isaiah 2 prophesies that the Lord's teaching will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem to the nations. Also that God will also bring others to His holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer as He faithfully forgives them. For He has promised also through Isaiah, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You live in that fulfillment of God's Old Testament promises. God has sent His witnesses' words to you. You live in fulfillment of God's promises as you let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. You also live in fulfillment of God's promise as you receive His bodily presence in His supper for the remission of sins. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. You too live in fulfillment of God's Old Testament promise as you declare the wonders and promises of God to others each day. For you are witnesses of these things as well around your kitchen table, on the telephone, at the park, in the car, before church and after church. Pastors have pulpits. Missionaries have outposts. And the apostles and the prophets have the Holy Scriptures from which to speak. But never ever think that the opportunities and the people that God gives to you each day are any less important though. Speak about Christ crucified and Christ risen to someone who has never been to church, to someone who has been absent for too long a time or too frequently and even to someone who never misses a Sunday. It doesn't matter if they've heard it before. Tell them again. We must never tire of hearing God's wonderful love at the cross, for it is the message that saves us. Nor should we tire of hearing of the resurrection, for it seals those promises of salvation. Or do you think that others have no sin that offends God? Or do you think that others' sin is any less offensive to God than your own? They need the sacrifice of Jesus just as much as you do. For there is no other way to salvation. Do you think that a, a suffering, a died, a buried, a resurrected Christ is not really relevant to people caught up in the business of living? Do you think it does not apply to the daily life of every person, all of whom are sinners? It's critical for all. Especially in our age where we are as alienated from one another as we are from God. There is encouragement in being united here in Christ. There is comfort from His sacrificial love. There is fellowship with the Holy Spirit too, but only because Jesus died and rose again. So, if people are facing financial problems, if they have a new baby or a new job, if they've received a great healing, if they have doubts rising in their hearts, or if they are fallen into sin like we all are, what do you do? Tell them that Jesus died for their sins and He has risen again for their forgiveness, life, and salvation. When you offer your condolences at a funeral home or when even you are the one receiving sympathy, don't just say something trite like, He's in a better place without telling them why it's infinitely better or how you know that it is. Tell them that Jesus died and rose again for them. As bad or as good as life gets, it will not last forever. But the word of the Lord endures forever, and He who is faithful will deliver you from evil. Are you thinking that you might go ahead and tell them that, but that you don't think that you can get them to believe you? You're exactly right. No matter what you say, you cannot convince them. As I told those yesterday at the men's breakfast, you cannot argue anyone into heaven. You'd be lying to yourself if you thought that you could. It is not your responsibility, and nor is it within your power to open their minds to believe Christ's word of peace. That is God's job. Jesus opened the disciples' minds, and whenever the Bible uses the word open like that, it is always the work of God, never the work of man. Opening the eyes of the blind. Opening the ears of the deaf. Opening the mouth of the mute. Opening the wombs of the barren. Opening heaven. All done by God. And so after Jesus rises from the dead, He opens the disciples' minds by cleaning out the filth, by clearing away the fear, and for forgiving the lives that they had believed. Instead, He fills their mind with His Word, with His truth, with His wisdom. And Jesus has done this for you and for the great multitude of Christians who have heard the apostles' eyewitnesses' accounts as well as you have. So just say the Word his word, not yours. Declare his wonders simply and clearly and let Christ be Christ. Believe that he has saved you without your works. Jesus knows our sins better than we do, and yet he did not turn aside and forsake us. No, he went to the cross and he came back to life through the resurrection to rescue us